Welcome to First City Church. We're excited that you are here with us on Easter. Um, if there is any way that we can serve you, please let us know. Uh, we, we're, we're an open book. We like to be put all of our cards on the table about who we are and what we believe and what we do. And so if you have questions, please, by all means, uh, take an opportunity to ask whether myself or Paul or someone else that you know is a part of this church. For those of you that know me, you know I'm, I'm a literature nerd. I, I like literature. Um, I, I taught uh, English before I was in ministry, and so I, I love reading classic literature. Uh, one of my favorite authors is Flannery O'Connor. Uh, if you did not get a healthy dose of Flannery O'Connor in high school or college, you should ask for your money back. Um, how, how many of you read Flannery O'Connor? Please. Oh, oh man, not enough of you. <laughs> well, one of, uh, her fav- or one of my favorite short stories of hers is called A Good Man is Hard to Find. Those of you that have read Flannery O'Connor, have you read this one? Okay, a couple of you. So for the, since most of you have not read that, let me, let me give you a summary of the story. So A Good Man is Hard to Find is about a family. So you have a mom and dad, two elementary-age school children, and then you have a baby and then a grandma. And this family lives together, and they're from Georgia, and they're heading to Florida on a trip on a, on, for vacation. Well, the grandma, she doesn't want to go to Florida. She would rather go to Tennessee to see some of her connections. And so to try to dissuade her son from going to Florida, she holds up this newspaper article about this criminal known as the misfit who has just escaped from jail. And he's supposedly headed to Florida. And so she's trying to scare her son from going to Florida. Well, he's having none of it. So the family piles into the car and they head to Florida. Well, on the way... The grandmother happens to get them lost on this back road, and then to make matters worse, she causes a car accident. And so there they are, stranded on the side of the road, in the middle of nowhere, and who would happen to come upon them? The misfit and his gang. And at first, it just seems that the misfit wants their car and their clothes, but the grandma, making matters even worse, recognizes him and blurts out, I know you're the misfit. And there things take a very tragic and dark turn for this family. And in the midst of committing a horrific crime, the grandma and the misfit get into a conversation. They begin to talk about things like good and evil and meaning and purpose and justice and punishment. And ultimately they start talking about Jesus. And in the midst of this conversation, the misfit has this moment of clarity, this shocking moment of clarity where he sees right through the veneer of all of reality and sees that there is a particular thing that determines everything else in our world. Let me read an excerpt of this conversation. The misfit and the grandma begin talking about Jesus, and this is what he says. Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead. And he shouldn't have done it. He's shown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw everything away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. No pleasure but meanness, he said, and his voice had become almost a snarl. Maybe he didn't raise the dead, the old lady mumbled, not knowing what she was saying and feeling so dizzy that she she sank down in the ditch with her legs twisted under her. I wasn't there, so I can't say he didn't, the misfit said. I wished I'd had have been there, he said, hitting the ground with his fist. It ain't right I wasn't there, because if I had been there, I would have known. Listen, lady, he said in a high voice. If I had been there, I would have known, and I wouldn't be like I am now. 
It's an interesting reflection that the misfit has in this moment because he sees that if what Jesus said and what Jesus did is true, then that profoundly changes everything. That defines all things in this world. It defines meaning and purpose, good and evil, family and friendships, work, money, power. It it defines our entire existence. And so is the misfit correct? This this question we have to ask ourselves, is, is the misfit correct? If Jesus is who he says he is, if he is truly the son of God, if he did everything he said he did, if he really healed the sick, if he really raised the dead, if he really lived a sinless life and then died in our place for our sins, if he really is resurrected, is there nothing else to do but throw everything away and follow him? Now, for those of you here that are this morning that maybe you don't profess faith in Christ, maybe you're unsure what you believe. You're, you're here this morning because a family or friend promised you Easter brunch, and you're like, sure, I'll sit through a church service for the promise of brunch. We're glad you're here. Understand that, that we're glad you're here. And, and there are probably a lot of reasons you have why you sort of keep Christianity and the church at a distance. Maybe you've been burned by the church Maybe you've experienced Christians that were self-righteous. Maybe, maybe you're in here this morning and you're saying, you know, I don't outright reject God and Jesus, but I'm just not sure and there's a lot of pain and baggage in my life. Well, I want you to understand that as a church, you're, that's all welcome here. Like we welcome your wrestles. We welcome your questions. We welcome that, that pain because many of us in this room, that's where we were at one time. And some, some in the room, that's where they are and they've been there for a while and they're wrestling through those things. And so that's all welcome here. But here's what I want you to do for just a few moments. I want you to set that aside for a second. I want you to set aside the baggage and the pain, set aside that past hurts, and I want you to concentrate on Jesus and ask yourself this question. If he really did what he said he did, if he is who he says he is, does this not change everything? Does this not impact all of reality? Does this not change the way you live your life? And so wherever you are this morning, whether you're a confident believer or a suspicious skeptic, I want us to consider Jesus and how his resurrection changes everything. There are a lot of things we could say this morning, but I want to focus on two. Two things that show that how Jesus and what he did changes everything. Because Christ is risen, it changes everything. Despite all the baggage, despite all the pain, despite all the junk that we experience, these two things, because they are true, because Christ is risen, cause us to say there's nothing else for us to do but throw everything away and follow Christ. So first, because Christ is risen, our sins can be forgiven. In 1 Corinthians 15, the passage that Caleb read for us, the Apostle Paul is confronting a false teaching that is trying to get itself into the church, namely that there is no resurrection. And to confront this, Paul proposes this sort of hopeless hypothetical. This is what he writes. If the dead are not raised, well, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The implication for the Christian faith if there is no resurrection is dire. If there is no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, then the gospel is not true. If the gospel is not true, 
then we have no hope. Like, look, you're, you're still in your sins. You're under the power of sin. You're at its mercy. You cannot stop. You cannot defeat it. You cannot beat it back. If Christ is not raised, then you are a slave to that sin. If Christ is not raised, you still stand under the judgment and condemnation of your sin. You're still on the hook. You're still guilty. And so if Christ is not raised... The situation is desperate and dire and hopeless. And this is what Paul wants the church to see. Why bother if Christ is not raised? Our faith is futile. However, if Christ has been raised, then the message of the gospel is true. And as he writes to us, praise God, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The message of the gospel is not fake news. The message of the gospel is real and it is true. And this is what this means. If you are in Jesus Christ, if you are united to Christ in faith, that means the power of sin has been broken. It means you are no longer at the mercy of sin. You are no longer enslaved to your sin. You no longer have to be beaten down and and taken captive by that sin. What this also means, because if Christ is raised, it means that you are no longer condemned. If you are in Jesus Christ, the word over you is forgiven, not guilty, set free. And the beautiful reality is that because Christ is risen, oh, we can be forgiven. We can know forgiveness. Now, some of you in here this morning, you may think, you know, having my sins forgiven is not necessarily the best thing in the world, so you know, I don't really think that's that big a deal. And so if Christ is raised or not, ah, that's, that, you know, that's not that big a deal to me. And that makes sense. Look, look if, if Christ does not seem to be that, that, that big a deal, if, if having your sins forgiven does not seem that big a deal, then it does make sense that you wouldn't think the resurrection is that big a news. But here's something that I want to suggest. I want to suggest that deep down, we all actually long for forgiveness. Like deep down, we all want to experience forgiveness. I mean, yes, some of us, we're prideful and we minimize our sin and we try to act as if we're not that bad. Some of us need to open our minds and our hearts more fully to the brokenness and the destruction that we inflict on one another. Some of us need to open our minds and hearts to how we do violence to what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. But deep down inside, unless we are psychopaths, deep down inside, no matter how far we push that guilt, we all want to be set free from it. We all have this longing in our soul to be unburdened from that, that, that guilt because we know we've messed up. So how many of you have heard or remember post-secret? Some of you are like, what is that? <laughs> Anybody remember post-secret from like, 10 years ago? Okay, a couple of you. Man, as many people as read Flannery O'Connor remember Post Secret. So I'm, I'm making really bad allusions this morning. I'm sorry. Nobody, it's like nobody's tracking with me. So Post Secret was this sort of experiment that Frank Warren did starting back in like 2004, 2005. And this is what he did. He passed out a bunch of postcards to people, just kind of walked in the park, uh, walked to different public places, uh, passed out self-addressed stamped envelopes to people and said, hey, write down anonymously your deepest, darkest secret, something that is true but you've never told anyone, and mail it to me. And so he wanted to do this social experiment to see what would happen. 
And within the first year, he got over 10,000 replies. Here's what some of the, the replies that he received. I gave my vegetarian sister a meal with beef. I waste office supplies because I hate my boss. I trashed my parents' house to make it look like I had a party while they were out of town so my mom would think I have friends. I am a Southern Baptist pastor's wife. No one knows that I do not believe in God. He's been in prison for two years because of what I did. Nine more to go. I have been on both sides of me too. And so over the past 13 years, Warren has received over one million postcards. And these postcards have been gathered into best-selling books. You can get these on Amazon or at Barnes & Noble. He has one of the most popular blog sites in the world. So you go to postsecret.com and you can see these, these postcards. And now there are exhibits of these postcards displayed in museums like the Smithsonian and others throughout the country. And so Frank Warren struck a nerve in people. He recognized that deep down inside... There is this longing to unburden our secrets, to unburden our guilt, to unburden ourselves from the pain that we feel because we know we have done things to hurt other people. We know that there is a shame that we carry. He became a kind of priest to people. He allowed them a way to confess, and people took him up on it. And so I wonder, if you were handed a postcard and asked to write down your deepest, darkest secret you were given an opportunity to unburden yourself in this way, what would you write? What's that thing in your heart? What is that thing that you hide from people? What is that burden you're carrying that you wish you could confess and just get off your chest, out of your soul? What is that thing that is weighing you down? What secret sins would you confess if you had the freedom to do? Because if we're utterly honest, deep down inside, oh, we long for forgiveness. We want to confess. We want to unburden our soul. Post-secret also reveals something else. Not only reveals that we want to unburden our soul, it also reveals that we're terribly afraid to do it. The reason Post-secret was so successful is because it was anonymous. Nobody was writing their name on that and saying, hey, Frank Warren, post my sin and my deepest, darkest secret for millions and millions of people to see. It was successful because it was anonymous. We are terrified of confessing our sin. We're terrified of unburdening our soul. We're terrified of letting people know what's inside here. Confession is a scary thing. Exposing our sin and our guilt is terrifying because we don't know what other people are going to do with it. We know that it puts us in a vulnerable state and people may shame us and scorn us and condemn us. And if you look at the climate of our culture, can you blame them? Like, if you look at our culture, the gotcha culture, how are people that confess sin and expose deep, dark secrets treated? It's like sharks to blood in the water. Confessing sin is an invitation for people to heap shame and scorn and condemnation. Rather than finding freedom and healing, we find abandonment. We find condemnation. We find people pushing themselves away from us. And so we're terrified of confessing. Look, some of you, you don't confess because you're self-righteous jerks. Let's just be honest. (laughs) Some of you, you're prideful. But a lot of you, you don't confess because you're terrified. And so you hide and you minimize as a way of self-defense. And what is pride if not self-defense? 
And this doesn't excuse not confessing, but church, we need to own something. We need to own the ways that we have often treated people, just like our culture, that when they come and they confess their sin, rather than receiving them with grace and mercy and compassion as Christ did, shame and scorn. And so there is a legitimate reason why people are afraid to confess. We long for forgiveness. We long to unburden, but we're terrified to do so. And this is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. This is why the resurrection of Christ is so, such good news. Because into our longing to be forgiven speaks the gospel. If anyone confesses their sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. Christ will forgive. God will forgive. Every sin that you have committed, every act of pride, every act of lust, every act of greed, every time you have used somebody, every time you've oppressed somebody, every time you've scammed and cheated somebody, Christ will forgive every sin. There is not a single sin ever committed in this world that the blood of Christ could not forgive. And into our fear of confessing sin, the gospel speaks this. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Look, we know our sins deserve condemnation. The fear that we have is real because we know deep down inside, yeah, my, my sin deserves shame and scorn. I deserve judgment. I deserve the righteous wrath of God. And there's no amount of good works that can cover that either. And it's like trying to take a shovel and a, some, some dirt and fill in the Grand Canyon. Like you can try, but it isn't going to happen because the problem, the hole, the scar is too deep. And so no amount of good works can ever make up for the guilt and the sin that you and I have committed. But this is why Christ came. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why Jesus stepped into our world. This is why he came so that he could stand in our place and die on our behalf. Christ came to be condemned so that you and I could be forgiven. Christ came so that we can stand in forgiveness. And if you are in Jesus Christ, if you are united to him, the word of God asks this question of you to bring you confidence. Who is there to condemn? Who can bring a charge against the people of God? What courts could they charge you in? Greater than the court of public opinion is the court of God. And in that courtroom stands Jesus Christ who was crucified, even greater, resurrected from the dead. And he is there defending you from all accusation of an enemy. So in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation, full forgiveness. You can confess your sins and you need not fear. You will be met with condemnation because in Jesus Christ, God will meet you with mercy and grace. So because Christ is raised, you're not in your sins. Because Christ is raised, you can confess your sins. Because Christ is raised, you need not fear God. If you are in Jesus Christ, he is faithful to you. He has forgiven you. You are not condemned. He has brought you into a relationship with him. He owns you. He is your father. You are his son and you are his daughter. He is just. He is loving. He is gracious. Ah, He not only forgives you, but he transforms you. He gives you his spirit and he is conforming you more and more into the image of Christ. He is setting you free from that sin. He's given you new life. 
so when we confess our sins, when we come to God because Christ is raised, we can experience forgiveness and life. Does this not change everything? Does this not affect how we live? Second, because Christ is risen, justice will prevail. Our world seems to be incredibly sensitive to injustice. Not that there is more injustice in our world today than there has been in the past, but there's a certain sensitivity going on right now. I mean, political scandals and and controversies show how sensitive we are to political oppression. Racial divides and conflict show how we are sensitive to the ways that racism has infected some of our institutions. The Me Too movement shows how we are sensitive to the injustice of the way some men have used women. Economic oppression shows that we are sensitive to the ways that corporations and sometimes banks and sometimes the government can abuse and exploit people. How we are sensitive as a culture. But it's not just that we're sensitive to it in the media. It's not just that we see it in the media, we read about it on social media, or watch it on TV. It's not just out there. It's something very real and personal to us too. We experience injustice ourselves. Many of you in this room, you're carrying the scars and the pain of injustice. Maybe right now you're experiencing it in your life. It's a live matter for you. Oh, injustice is something that we all face. Maybe the injustice of being demeaned. Having, having someone take your strengths, your character, your personality, the work that you do, all that you are as a person, and devalue and degrade it. Maybe the injustice of having your weaknesses mocked. Or how about the injustice of having someone who is an authority over you, rather than using their power and authority to help you flourish, oppress, and hold you down. Some of you, it's the injustice of being lied about and slandered in front of others. It's the injustice of being ripped off and scammed. Some of you, you face the injustice of physical abuse. Far too many of you in this room have experienced the injustice of emotional and spiritual and sexual abuse. How we all know all too well the pain of injustice. And in those moments, it's very easy for us to go, where are you, God? God, do you care? God, are you, you present? Why, why do you let this continue to go on? But let's be careful because it's not just that we experience injustice. We're also guilty. We're also guilty of injustice in this world. Some of us in this room, are we not in guilty of demeaning and degrading others? Are not some of us guilty of lying and slandering others? Are not some of us guilty of having ripped off and scammed other people? Are not some of us in this room guilty of physical abuse or emotional or spiritual abuse or sexual abuse? Uh, we also commit injustice in this world. But no matter if it's something that you've experienced and you've been a victim, or you are one who has perpetuated injustice, this question remains, where are you, God? God, do you care? God, why do you allow this to continue? Well, the good news of the gospel is he does care. The good news of the gospel is that God has done something and is doing something about it. 
Here's what Tim Keller says about the relationship of God to our suffering and the injustice we face. Christianity alone among the world religions claims that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ and therefore knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, and imprisonment. In his death, God suffers in love, identifying with the abandoned and God-forsaken. Why did he do it? The Bible says that Jesus came on a rescue mission for creation. He had to pay for our sins so that someday he can end evil and suffering without ending us. If we again ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? And we look at the cross of Jesus and we still do not know what the answer is. However, we now know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, steps into our world and takes the misery and sin and injustice that you and I face and perpetuates on himself. Every time you and I have demeaned and degraded someone and every time we have been demeaned and degraded, every time we have been shamed and scorned and every time we have shamed and scorned others, every time we have used other people for our lusts, every time we have cheated and robbed and scammed others, and every time we have been used and cheated and scammed by others, every time we have used our power and our position to oppress and hold others down, and every time we have been oppressed and held others down, every time we have abused and used other people, and every time we have experienced abuse for us and our salvation, Christ takes all of that on himself. All of that misery, all of that pain, all of that sin, all of that injustice, and he allows evil men to strike him down. But in the good news of the gospel, he's doing something else in that moment too. Yes, Christ is paying for our sin, but there's something else going on as well. Listen to what Colossians 3, 13 through 15 says. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, paying for our sin. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. On the cross, Jesus takes our debt of sin and he cancels it. But here's what else is going on. Jesus is taking evil's best shot. It is open season on Jesus. Evil men, evil spiritual forces, it's the rulers and authority. They are giving Jesus their all. They are inflicting on him the full brunt of their evil. And Jesus, with his arms on the cross open, exposes himself, makes himself vulnerable as if to say, take your best shot. Take your best shot. Give me your, all of your scorn, all of your abuse, all of your shame. Give me all of your evil takes evil's best shot. Here is evil's defining moment. Here is evil putting the full force of its power on display, striking down the God of the universe, the one who created all things good and true and beautiful. Evil is murdering the Lord of life. 
And Christ is taking all of that injustice on himself. But here's what this passage says. In taking all of that evil, taking the full brunt of evil, Jesus exposes it. He puts it to open shame. He says, your best shot isn't good enough. I take, I take all of that injustice, all of that sin, all of that evil, and it does not hold me down. Evil, injustice, shame, scorn, abuse cannot stop the purposes of God. Evil cannot thwart God's redemption in the world. Because Christ is raised from the dead, evil has been silenced. Evil has been defeated. Evil does not get the final word. Injustice, while it may be happening now, does not get the last word. This is what we read later in 1 Corinthians. Then comes the end when he, meaning Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God, kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The good news of the gospel is not only where our sins can be forgiven, but every injustice, every evil will be put to an end when Christ returns. You see, when Christ returns, he's not returning as one open and vulnerable, saying, evil, take your best shot. Rather, he's coming and giving evil his best shot, and it will destroy it for good. Because that Christ is risen, justice will prevail. The final word in history is victory of good and truth and beauty and righteousness and holiness. He will put all his enemies under his feet, even death itself. And he will establish justice and righteousness and goodness and truth for eternity. This is the good news of the gospel. Again, here's what Tim Keller says. When we look at the whole scope of the Bible storyline, we see clearly that Christianity is not only about getting one's individual sins forgiven so that we can go to heaven. That is an important means of God's salvation, but it is not the final end or purpose of it. The purpose of Jesus' coming is to put the whole world right, to renew and restore the creation, not to escape it. It's not just to bring personal forgiveness and peace, but also justice and shalom to our world. Do you long for justice? Do you want to see peace and righteousness? Well, the gospel holds out hope for you. The gospel is the means to that. I wonder if you do not have hope in the gospel, what hope do you have for justice? If you do not believe in Christ, what hope do you have in justice? Is your hope government, which is so shot through injustice with injustice itself? Is your hope in the education system, which is so shot through with injustice itself? The only thing that is going to end injustice is something that is not shot through with injustice, and that is Jesus Christ. And so when Christ comes, justice will prevail. Evil will be defeated for all eternity. That is our hope. God isn't indifferent. God is not at a distance. He cares deeply about creation. He cares deeply about justice, so much so that he came and he paid for it with his, the life of his son. Because Christ is risen, justice will prevail. So in conclusion, is the misfit correct? If Jesus did what he said, is there nothing else for us to do but throw everything away and follow him? I mean, if we can truly be forgiven, if we can truly confess our sins to God and be fully forgiven, no condemnation, if, if he adopts us as his own children, 
and accepts us into his family and gives us his spirit and transforms us into the image of Christ. If, if he is going to come back and restore righteousness and goodness and justice and peace in our world, is there nothing else for us to do but to throw everything away and follow him? Is the misfit correct? I think so. Oh, I think so, because Christ is risen. There's nothing for us to do but throw everything away. This changes everything in history. This just changes the entire meaning of life. And so let me encourage you with this. Christ is risen. And because Christ is risen, throw everything away and chase after him and his kingdom. Give all that you are to him and his kingdom. Give all that you are to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. Give all that you are to love and to serve other people. Give all that you are to fight for righteousness and justice and peace in our world because we know that is the final word. Oh, because Christ is risen. Let's give our all to him and proclaim this glorious good news to our city and to our world. Amen.